So last week we encountered a faithless and defiant Moses who did not want to go to Egypt. He begged God to send anybody else but finally resigned himself to God's will only after the Lord told Moses he would send his brother Aaron with him to Egypt as his spokesman. So we're gonna jump right in at Exodus 4 verse 18 and we read this. So Moses went and returned to Jethro his father-in-law and said to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. So based on what we've learned about Moses thus far, I gotta be honest, it's, it's really hard to tell whether he's showing great humility and honor here, being 80 years old himself and still going to seek his father-in-law's blessing, or if Moses is just looking for another excuse to delay obeying God and actually going to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. I listened to a bunch of messages and a lot of pastors were saying, this is such a good example of how humble Moses was. And based on what we've learned so far though, I'm not convinced. For me, it's really 50-50. He could just be thinking, well, what could I do to delay going to Egypt? I need my father-in-law's blessing. It's sort of like, well, do you? Do you? You're, you're 80 years old and, and God just called you. So if your father-in-law says no, are you, are you not going to go? You're going to side with your father-in-law over the God who appeared to you as a flaming fire in the burning bush? I find that a little hard to believe. This is also a little bit confusing as far as the order of events goes, and, and I'll explain why. Because in last week's study, Moses was at Mount Sinai when he encountered the Lord in the burning bush. And back in verse 14 of chapter four, the chapter we're in, God responded to Moses' complaint that he was not a good speaker by saying, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he's also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So God told Moses at the burning bush, Aaron your brother is on his way to meet you. But Moses doesn't wait for Aaron? He just hightails it out of there and heads back to his home in Midian. So what's up with that? To keep it as brief as I can, chapter four has some really, really big chronological problems. Like if you map out where everybody is moving around and the order that they're moving in in chapter four, it's a mess. It's a real, real mess. We'll keep moving into verse 19. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, so he's speaking to Moses when Moses has returned to Midian, go, return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. So now we get the insight that part of the reason for Moses' reluctance to return to Egypt was his fear that he would be immediately arrested and executed for the murder that caused him to flee Egypt 40 years earlier. But God specifically assures Moses that that is a dead issue, pun intended. Everyone who knew about Moses' crime is dead and the implication is that there's no record of it. That's the idea of what God is telling Moses. Now what that also tells us is that the current Pharaoh, at this point in our story, the Pharaoh of the Exodus, the Pharaoh with whom Moses is about to tussle, the Pharaoh on the throne when God sends the famous plagues to Egypt, that Pharaoh cannot be the same Pharaoh who sought to kill Moses 40 years earlier. This must be a different Pharaoh because the Lord tells Moses 
all the men who sought your life are dead. And Exodus specifically told us that the Pharaoh who was alive 40 years earlier was seeking to kill Moses. That means the current Pharaoh cannot be the same Pharaoh who was on the throne 40 years earlier, which if you're not putting this together means the current Pharaoh cannot be Moses' grandfather. You'll recall that Moses was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, so that guy cannot be the one who's on the throne right now. 40 years was a long time for a Pharaoh to reign back then. And when you look at the date range in which the Exodus is believed to have happened, whether you go with the early date or the late date, there were only two or three Pharaohs in that time who reigned for more than 40 years. That means that in all likelihood, the Pharaoh who enslaved the Israelites and ordered the male babies to be killed, the Pharaoh who was Moses' adoptive grandfather, is in all likelihood a different guy from the Pharaoh who sought to kill Moses 40 years later, who is a different guy from the Pharaoh currently on the throne in our story. While unlikely, while very unlikely, there's a tiny chance, there is a possibility that Moses' adoptive grandfather was still on the throne when Moses was 40 and was the one who sought to kill him. There's a tiny chance that is possible, but it's highly unlikely. So is it possible that the Pharaoh of the Exodus, the Pharaoh currently on the throne in our story, was Moses' adoptive brother? Is that possible? We have no idea. We don't even know if Moses had an adoptive brother. We don't know. There are some Pharaohs who didn't have any sons. So it's technically possible, but we just don't know. And then another favorite question, could any of the Pharaohs in our timeline be Ramesses II, the one known as Ramesses the Great, the one in all the movies? Well, Ramesses II did actually reign for 66 years, but as we discussed in an earlier message, it's unlikely that he's a character in our story, but it is a possibility. We just can't know for sure based on the current information we have at our disposal right now in history. So hopefully that clears that up a little bit. But the big thing we need to know, the Pharaoh in our story right now, not the same Pharaoh from Moses' birth or the time Moses murdered the Egyptian. Verse 20, then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. You remember that's the rod we read about last week that can turn into a snake as a sign of God's power. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand. So he's saying, make sure you perform all the signs that I gave you, all the miracles that we read about last week. Then the Lord says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So Moses sets off for Egypt, apparently without Aaron, and the Lord tells him to be sure he performs these miraculous signs that he gave him in our study last week. But then the Lord says something that's incredibly controversial within Christianity. The Lord says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And many people read this and their first reaction is, well, what? God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart and then hold him responsible for having a hard heart? How is that fair? So let's get into this. The first thing I want you to notice in the text is that this is a prediction right now. God is telling Moses that he will harden Pharaoh's heart in the future. 
And God is going to say the same thing in Exodus 7.3. He's going to promise that he's going to do it in the future. God is not saying here yet, I am hardening his heart. He's saying I will. Future tense. The second thing you need to know is that the text is going to tell us, the Exodus text, specifically when God is hardening Pharaoh's heart and when Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. The text is going to distinguish between who is the one doing the hardening. And guess what? The text is going to record seven instances where Pharaoh hardens his own heart before God hardens his heart for the first time. And I put all those references on your outline if you want to check them out for yourself this week. God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart for the first time only after the sixth plague. And he will specifically harden it after the eighth, ninth, and tenth plagues. So here's why that matters. Here's why that matters. The text is going to make it clear that Pharaoh wanted to have a hardened heart against God. He didn't want to believe in God. He didn't want to. His actions will show that even when his own people were suffering and the evidence that God was real was overwhelming, he did not want to acknowledge that God was greater than him. He didn't want to do it. And the sad truth is that some people will never turn to Jesus because they simply don't want to. The Gospel of John puts it so soberingly when it says, why doesn't everyone turn towards the light? Because a lot of men prefer the darkness. They prefer the darkness. They just don't want to believe that there's a God because they don't want to serve him. God knew Pharaoh would never acknowledge him, but he gave Pharaoh a host of opportunities and a ton of evidence anyway. Now the Old Testament teaches us lessons. It teaches us principles using big exaggerated examples. And I don't mean that the facts are exaggerated. I mean that the size of the story, the size of the event is massive. Sort of like how the famous fable of the boy who cried wolf that's a story to teach the moral lesson, don't lie because then people won't believe you when you need them to. But it tells it in an exaggerated way with exaggerated stakes because what happens at the end of that story? The wolf eats all of the boy's sheep. That's what happens at the end of the story. So the story doesn't involve not being able to find a pencil or missing out on a meal. It ends with an entire flock of sheep being eaten by a wolf. It's an exaggerated scale of a story to make a point. So the Old Testament is full of things that really happened, but they serve as massive, huge examples of things that God wants to teach us. So you have something like God wants to teach us about suffering, so you have Job. A man who loses his children, his life, his wife turns on him, he gets sick, he loses everything to the point where he just wants to die. And when we talk about suffering, it's so that we can learn a lesson about it from his exaggerated example. And so one of the ways God uses Pharaoh is to demonstrate that the Lord gives everybody more than enough opportunities and more than enough evidence. The examples are exaggerated. Well, how do I know God is real? Because he just turned the Nile River to blood. How do I know God is real? Because Moses told you that if you didn't let the Israelites go, 
hail was going to fall from the sky and kill every living thing in Egypt that's not indoors, and it happened. That's how you know. So we get, we're going to get these exaggerated examples. Now hang with me here. In his letter to the Romans, the apostle Paul points out that God gives everybody at least two huge pieces of evidence for his existence. Everybody, everywhere, through all time, gets these two pieces of evidence that God is real. Paul says in Romans 2, 14 and 15, he says everybody gets an inherent moral conscience. So everybody is born with a conscience that some degree tells them what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is right. You should do this, you should not do that. He says everybody everywhere is born with some degree of that. And that's from God. And then the second piece of evidence, Paul says, is that the observable world around us testifies to the existence of God. That's Romans 1, 18 to 23. Paul says, whoever you are, wherever you are, you experience the world around you. And if you just look around you, if you just listen to what's around you, if you interact with a person, if you think about how you're made, you know deep down within your soul, your soul bears witness only a God could have made this. This cannot be an accident. And God says everybody gets those two pieces of evidence and everybody is responsible for how they respond to that. Do you follow that? Do you pursue that? Are you led by that? Or do you say, mm, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I'm going to choose to believe something else. Like far too many, Pharaoh had no interest in the evidence. And here's where that gets scary because there can come a point in anyone's life where God says, okay, that's it, that's it. You've been given more than enough evidence. You still refuse to acknowledge me. You've been given enough evidence that it's obvious you're never going to acknowledge me. So I am going to give you your heart's desire. I'm going to allow the truth that you suppress I'm going to allow the lie that you embrace to actually make sense to you. So you know you're rejecting the truth deep down. You know you're choosing to believe a lie. And I'm actually going to let that lie start to make sense to you. I'm going to give you what you want. Yes, it's difficult to realize that you're in the wrong and you need to change. But it's far worse to be in the wrong and then start believing that you're actually in the right because it means that you're beginning to lose your grip on reality. The actual term is you're beginning to become delusional. You're unable now to, to tell the truth from a lie. You're unable to distinguish the difference between reality and something you've invented in your own mind. You're now at the point where, where you can invent a truth in your head and actually begin to believe that it really is the truth. That's what the Lord allows to happen sometimes. It's possible to reach the point where you cannot be saved long before your earthly death. It is not true that everybody has until their final breath to change their mind. It is possible to make up your mind and be so unwilling to change and have seen so much evidence and rejected it so many times that your mind can never be changed. And it's possible to reach that place by saying no to the Lord over and over and over and over again, rejecting what you know is the truth over and over and over again. That's what the Bible calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the only unforgivable sin. It's possible to seal your eternal fate long before your earthly life ends. 
And yes, that, that's scary. It is scary. It's terrifying. And it's the choice that Pharaoh made. And because the Lord knew that Pharaoh would never repent and never turn to him, the Lord used Pharaoh as a pawn in this epic story which reveals the glory of God. So write this down. Because Pharaoh refused to soften his heart, God hardened it. Because Pharaoh refused to soften his heart, God hardened it. It's no joke to reject the Lord when he comes to you speaking the truth. It's no joke to reject the Lord when he sends someone to speak the truth to you. That's why the writer of Hebrews counsels his readers with these words, I put it on your outline. Today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That was the appeal of the writer of Hebrews to his readers saying, if you can hear the truth in your soul today and you know it's true, respond today. Don't harden your hearts. Why? Because we cannot assume that we have another chance coming, another day to decide. We cannot assume we have the luxury of hardening our hearts today and then softening them tomorrow. We don't know what the future holds. So don't, don't play games with God. Don't play games with the truth because the stakes are far too high. If God is speaking to you today about anything, Respond to him today. Don't assume that you will hear the voice of God tomorrow. It's an incredibly serious thing to hear the voice of the Lord and say, no, but not today. I'm not going to do that today. I assume God will just speak to me again tomorrow. How do you know? How do you know? But why doesn't God just keep giving opportunities and evidence until the day we die? Why doesn't he just keep trying until the day we die? Well, because according to the Bible, those who reject Jesus are going to be judged based upon the evidence they received over the course of their lives and the revelation they received. So the more evidence you receive in your life, the more revelation God gives you, the more harshly you're going to be judged if you reject God. So by making them unable to see, by putting a limit on how much evidence a person gets, God is being merciful because he's putting a limit on how much evidence they'll be accountable for. Jesus did that with the Pharisees and the religious leaders when he was on the earth. They reached the point where he said, because you would not see, you will now be unable to see. And he's not just judging them because he's mean and angry. He is being merciful to them because he's saying, you're never going to believe in me. You're never gonna give your life to me. You're never gonna worship me. And so if I keep doing these miracles right in front of you, if I keep teaching right in front of you, giving you more and more revelation and you keep rejecting it, it's just more stuff that you're gonna be judged for in eternity. So I'm gonna harden your heart so that you can't believe, so that you won't be responsible for the revelation and the evidence that you hear from this point on. And there's another layer to God's battle of wills with Pharaoh that's going to emerge here. Uh, the Egyptians believed that when a person died, their heart would be weighed on scales in the afterlife, in the hall of judgment. And if their heart was, quote unquote, heavy with sin, they would be judged and annihilated. They believed one could avoid being judged for one's sins by simply resisting the urge to confess them during your trial in the hall of judgment. 
And so to help their deceased loved ones resist the urge to confess their sins, relatives would place a stone scarab beetle over their heart, which they believed would literally harden their heart and result in their salvation. This is another reason why when Pharaoh is, is up against it, he keeps resisting confessing his sin. It wasn't part of his culture or his view of salvation or deliverance, and it's why it's going to be such a big deal when Pharaoh finally does confess his sin and is judged for it. Even that is a picture of the gospel. It's the complete opposite of how the world works. In the kingdom of God, you cannot enter until you confess that you're a sinner in need of the mercy of God. The Egyptians were right in understanding that sin is a death sentence. If you're found guilty of sin, you will die. Where they were wrong was in thinking that it's possible to conceal your sin in the afterlife. They were wrong to think that you can hide your sin in the afterlife because sin has to be dealt with. Everything's going to be exposed and sin has to be dealt with. Our sin has not been concealed. It hasn't been hidden. The reality is our sin has been fully acknowledged, it has been known, it has been counted, and it has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. Our sin hasn't been concealed, it's been dealt with, it's been handled, the debt has been paid. Verse 22, God says to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn, so I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And if you're familiar with the Exodus story and where we're headed, then you know that there is some serious foreshadowing going on here. To help Pharaoh understand how much God loves Israel, the Lord tells Moses to describe Israel as God's firstborn son. And at that time in history, you probably know that firstborn sons were especially prized. They would be the primary heir, the next family patriarch, all that good stuff. And Moses was to tell Pharaoh, hey, the Lord says that Israel is his firstborn. He loves them the way a father loves his firstborn son. And the Lord wants to spend some time with his firstborn son, but you're holding him hostage. So if you refuse to let him go, the Lord is going to kill your firstborn son. And we're getting some insight here into how personal this issue was for the Lord. We're getting a glimpse into the heart of our Heavenly Father and how much He cares for His children. The protective instincts that we have as parents flow from the fact that we're made in the image of God. We get that from Him. Someone messes with our kid and we want to take him out. I don't know if you're a dad and like, you know, your kid is eight or something and another eight-year-old is messing with him and you've had that thought sometimes. You're like, Man, how much trouble would I get in for hitting another eight-year-old kid as an adult? That comes from the Lord. There's just this thing in us that wants to protect our kids. We get that from our Heavenly Father. And when Jesus came to the earth, he showed the same thing. You know by now that Jesus told his disciples, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, I am exactly what the Father is like. My character is the same as the Father's. My personality is the same as the Father's. And when he spoke about those who exploit and manipulate believers, the children of God for personal gain, this is what Jesus said. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. 
The whole point there is, listen, God the Father does not like it when people mess with his kids. He does not like it. And just a quick side note to humanize the story. Remember what we talked about last week, how Moses was faithless and defiant when God called him? Well, can you imagine how, how Moses felt when God tells him, here's what I want you to say to Pharaoh. If you don't let Israel go, God's gonna kill your firstborn son. I want you to go and stand before Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, and threaten the life of his firstborn son. You'd be terrified. Moses was. After the Lord gave him his lines, Moses must have been thinking, well, you know, uh, maybe I'll get killed by bandits on the way to Egypt or, or attacked by wild animals. That would be great. There's still that hope. Maybe that'll happen before I get to Egypt. Moses is going to do it, but he must have been terrified, terrified. Well, now we reach one of the strangest sections in the entire Bible. Three verses that are just weird. They're just weird. And I got to explain this because there's just no way to really figure it out on your own for most of us. It wasn't easy for me to do that either. Verse 24, let's just read the section together here. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. All pretty self-explanatory, right? So I think we'll just, we'll just move on. But I mean, what do you do with this? There are so many questions. And if we're studying the word of God as opposed to simply reading the word of God, then we have to actually wrestle with the questions that come up. Questions like, okay, God has just finished calling and commissioning Moses. Even in Midian, God is like, let's get going. Let's get going to Egypt. The Lord's been working to reassure Moses, promising him that everyone who's gonna kill him is dead. I'm gonna send Aaron with you. Here are some signs to perform. So why in the world all of a sudden is God out to kill Moses? How does that make any kind of sense? Why does circumcision solve whatever the problem is? And why the circumcision of Moses' son, Gershom? Why is Moses' wife, Zipporah, the one performing the circumcision? Why does she touch the foreskin to Moses' feet? That's what the original Hebrew means. And what in the world is she talking about when she says, surely you are a husband of blood to me? Those are just some of the questions that these three verses generate. And I share those just to give you an example of what it means to dig into a passage that you don't understand. It can help to break things down into questions and then look for specific answers to those questions. So let's work through this as best we can. We know that God is angry with Moses. He's angry with Moses. And the only thing that has changed since God last spoke to Moses in Midian is that Moses and his family have started their journey toward Egypt. And I think that from that, we can surmise that there's something God expected Moses to do before beginning the journey. I think that's a logical inference. And because of that, God seeks to kill Moses. And I think it's better if we, if we put that phrase in our mind as God began to kill Moses. 
Because if God wanted to kill Moses, it, it would be done like that, right? There would be no God tried to kill Moses, but what, like Moses hid behind a tree? I don't think that's what happened. So it would seem that God wanted Moses to understand that he was going to very quickly die if he didn't fix whatever the problem was. So God begins to kill Moses. The text doesn't tell us exactly what happened to Moses, but let's just say it was something like a serious illness that was rapidly progressing toward death. I think that's probably a pretty reasonable assumption. Zipporah knows exactly why this is happening. Moses' wife knows exactly why this is happening. She knows it's God's doing, and she also knows what to do. Well, how does she know that it's God's doing? The text doesn't tell us. How does she know that the circumcision of their son, Gershom, will fix the problem? The text doesn't tell us. So we're left to speculate on the answers to those two questions along with the big question, what did Moses do wrong? So we'll try and answer that big question and it's gonna mean chasing some rabbits, but I have no idea how else to make this make any kind of sense, so hang with me here. Back in Genesis 17, God gave the right of circumcision to Abraham as a physical mark of his covenant with Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites. Circumcision was a physical reminder to Hebrew men that they belonged to the Lord and were set apart for him, just as he had set them apart to be his chosen people. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant promises to Israel. Gershom is a young boy at this time, And what we do know from the text is that obviously he had not been circumcised. And when we remember the importance of circumcision, that it represented God's covenant, it makes sense that God would be angry at Moses for not placing the sign of the covenant on his own sons before heading off to Egypt as God's representative to the entire nation of Israel. So this is something that everyone who's a member of Israel, every male is supposed to have done to them on the eighth day of their life. And Moses, you haven't done this to your own kid, but you're gonna go and represent me to the entire nation of Israel? Like get your junk together, Moses. That, that, that makes sense. Why had Gershom not been circumcised? We don't know for sure. We do know that Moses failed in one of his key duties as a Hebrew father by not circumcising his son. Now some scholars suggest that Moses simply didn't care enough to do it. He was like, eh, whatever, which I think we can kind of picture Moses doing. While other scholars suggest that his wife Zipporah, who was a Midianite, may have found the practice disgusting and demanded that Moses not do it to her son. And in that scenario, Moses chose to appease his wife rather than please the Lord. But again, those are speculations, we don't know. Whatever the reason for Gershom not being circumcised, God strikes Moses with a deathly illness, let's call it that. He's dying fast, and even though we don't know how, Zipporah knows exactly what's going on. Perhaps God told Moses, or perhaps Moses instinctively knew why, and Moses just told Zipporah. He's like, listen, God is doing this because I haven't taken care of circumcising Gershom. And I think that if that's true, then it stands to reason that he would have just told her how to perform a circumcision. You get a flint knife, you you get a clamp, and yeah, yeah, you go through the whole thing. Because he's too frail to do it himself, he's dying. And if that's true, that, that, that would all sort of make good, reasonable sense so far. But we'd have a couple of big questions left. One being, well, why does Zipporah touch Gershom's foreskin to Moses' feet? 
And what is she talking about when she says, surely you are a husband of blood to me? Now I should mention that the interpretation I've shared so far is the most common interpretation among scholars. And when it comes to these last two questions, those same scholars generally give these answers. They'll say, well, Zipporah touched Gershom's foreskin to Moses' feet as some sort of sign that she had done this in his place. She had performed the circumcision in his place as his proxy, and she's transferring the spiritual effect of that to him, something along those lines. And when she says, surely you're a husband of blood to me, she's saying something along the lines of, some of your translations might even say it, you're a bloody husband. You're a bloody husband. Because she's angry with Moses for making her do something that she shouldn't have had to do, but that she also considers to be barbaric and disgusting. Okay, that's great, Jeff. That all makes sense to me. Which is why I wish I could just move on. But there's more. And this has to be the most I've ever talked about foreskins to a group of people in my life. And uh, there's another view. And in this other view, Moses' circumcision is the issue. Historians now know that a form of circumcision was practiced in Egypt among the Egyptians. However, it was a different method that produced a different physical result. And I've got a picture I'm gonna put on. No, I don't, I'm just kidding, okay. But that's as much detail as I'm gonna go into. <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna get more specific than that, even though you're probably thinking, well, what do you mean different? Just, well, I don't know, just figure it out. And so this other view suggests something like this. It suggests that Moses' parents perhaps did not circumcise him on the eighth day. Perhaps they were nervous that he would scream more than normal, be discovered and killed under the edict that was in place to kill all Hebrew boys at the time. So Moses was not circumcised as a Hebrew baby. And then when Moses was delivered to the palace to the daughter of Pharaoh as a young boy, she had him circumcised in the Egyptian manner. Now God expected Moses to take care of this before he set off for Egypt because after all, Israel's deliverer would need to bear the sign of God's covenant with Israel. And without getting too graphic, Egyptian circumcision was not the same as the circumcision that God described to Abraham. You would have to have a second procedure to get in line with the one that God told Abraham to perform on his children. But in this scenario, Moses didn't want to do it because, because it would hurt. And again, that seems very consistent with the personality of Moses we've come to see thus far. Well, I, I don't want to. I don't, I don't want to. We can totally imagine that. So God strikes Moses and Gershom is circumcised as some sort of proxy for Moses because he should have been circumcised anyway. And the understanding is that Moses is going to get to it ASAP. Perhaps God is like, okay, this is gonna be fine because Moses, I actually don't want you to get circumcised right now because then that's gonna put you out of commission for several days and you're gonna use it as an excuse to delay going to Egypt and I need you to go to Egypt. So that's an alternative scenario. And there's a couple of alternative details I'm gonna share as well. So the Hebrew word feet is regal, regal. And it's used in the Old Testament to refer to feet, legs, or the genital area. It was a Hebrew euphemism, basically. Every culture has this. We have this in our own culture. It was a more polite way to refer to the genital area. And I'm not gonna go over the examples, but if you want to, the references are on your outlines. There's at least three places in the Old Testament where the word feet 
is used to refer to the genital area. So when it says that Zipporah touched Gershom's foreskin to Moses' feet, it's most likely referring to his genital area. She just comes by, opens his robe, and does the thing. There is no precedent biblically or historically for touching a foreskin to someone's feet. Uh, if this was intended to be some sort of substitutionary ritual in which Gershom is being circumcised because Moses could not be because he was too sick, it makes more sense that she's touching it to Moses' genital area. God bless to us the reading of his word. <laughs> Finally, is it hot in here? Man, there's, a, there's an alternative explanation for the bridegroom of blood comment made by Zipporah. Zipporah was a Midianite, and by all indications, though, she's a worshiper of Yahweh. And if you wanted to become part of the nation of Israel and you were a man, you had to undergo the rite of Hebrew circumcision. If you were a single woman, you would need to commit to only marry a man who was part of the nation of Israel. The key idea was that if you were joining the nation of Israel, any single woman was to marry Israeli blood, Jewish blood. And this would later be written into the law that God would give to Moses in Deuteronomy. So Moses was an ethnic Hebrew, but he was not fully circumcised, which means he was not fully identified as a religious Hebrew. And that would mean that he was denying Zipporah the spiritual security of being married, of having a marriage within the bounds of God's covenant. She would have wanted that. When Gershom is circumcised in Moses' stead, in Moses' place, and God accepts it, it is in the eyes of God now, clearly, as though Moses has been circumcised, which means that he is now a full bridegroom of blood to Zipporah. They are now married within the bounds of God's Hebrew covenant. That's the idea. That's the other theory. I think it's pretty clear that Zipporah was ticked off when you get to the end of this. That's obvious. Her attitude is something along the lines of, finally, none of this would have happened. I wouldn't have had to do this if you just done what you should have taken care of years ago. And when we reach Exodus 18.2, we'll learn that Zipporah and her sons were not with Moses and Aaron when they went to Egypt. He had sent them back to her home in Midian with her father Jethro. And most scholars agree that he sent them back shortly after this bridegroom of blood incident. Now we don't know why, but the two big speculations are it could be that Moses thought Egypt would be too dangerous for them, or it could be that Zipporah is just really mad at him and they just can't stand living together at this exact moment. And Moses is thinking, I'm supposed to lead a whole nation of people out of slavery. I don't, I don't have time for a bitter wife right now. Go home and stay with your dad and we'll deal with this later on. That's also a possibility. So as far as explanations go, all of that, whether you believe me or not, is the best, most concise way I could share the data with you. So hopefully you, you understand the gist of what's going on a little bit. We, we can safely assume the issue is that someone who was supposed to be circumcised was not circumcised. And Gershom being circumcised, whether it was for his own sake or as a proxy for Moses, solved the issue. Moses should have taken care of something before he left for Egypt. He didn't. That angered God. So God is teaching him a lesson about the importance of taking care of things at home. And you're going to have to look through that information, come to your own conclusions. There's no firm thing we can rest on. We can just say, this is what we know. This is what we don't know. So what do we do with that information, though, practically? I mean, what, what lessons can we take from this? 
And so no matter what the issue was, whether it was Moses or Gershom, I think we can take something from the fact that Moses failed his duty as a father. And the Lord took that really, really seriously. In 1 Peter 4, 17, it says that judgment must begin with the household of God. You've heard me talk about it before. Paul says we're not meant to judge those outside the church, but we are meant to judge those inside the church. Because the people outside the church, they're not meant to act like Jesus. But the people inside the church, we are meant to act like Jesus. And we gotta hold each other to that standard. We gotta hold each other accountable. And so from God's perspective in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, he expects those who belong to him to take care of their business in their house, in their church, in their family, before they seek to do ministry to anybody else. God makes it clear in the New Testament especially as well that he expects elders Elders to be a faithful husband, take care of their family, and raise their children to love Jesus. If you're not doing those things, you're not qualified to be an elder, which is a synonym for pastor in the New Testament church. You're not giving your marriage the attention it needs. You're not giving your children the attention it needs. You're not qualified to be a pastor in the church, according to the New Testament. God expects pastors and ministers to minister to their families first. So write this down. Because this is true for everybody. God considers ministry to family a higher priority than ministry to anyone else. He considers ministry to family a higher priority than ministry to anyone else. Jesus says this too to the Pharisees. He says, you know, you've got parents who are starving and you're out here making a big show of giving money to the poor on the street. Go take care of your family. If you're a father who has neglected your spiritual responsibilities. It's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to start prioritizing ministry to your family today. And I know what Satan's telling you. Satan tells you all the time. He says, it's too late. The window of opportunity is gone. Too late to try and deal with the flesh of your children. And while it might be more difficult, while it might take longer to see some fruit, the right thing to do is still the right thing to do. And it's never too late to do the right thing. You grab the knife, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and you begin to apply it to your family. Hebrews 4.12, it's on your outlines, says famously, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You speak the word of God to your kids, no matter how old they are. If they don't want to hear it, you stand on the promises of the word of God and you pray it for them. Hey, but I've got young kids and teenagers and they're, they're just not into the Bible. They're just not into it. That's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. Guess what? My flesh isn't into the word of God either. Nobody's is. Anybody who wants to sin, anybody who wants to do what their flesh wants is not going to be into the word of God, but the word of God will still work. It will still have an effect. It will still sow seeds into their heart that in due time will come to a harvest if we don't give up, if we don't give up. It's about family identity and saying, well, this is who we are. This is what we do in this house, or as Joshua famously declared, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Man, I hope my kids are into it. 
I hope they are. I hope they stay into it. But if they're not into it, if they don't stay into it, that's not relevant. Because as the father, as the dad in my house, I do what I do to honor my God in my house, in my family. In Deuteronomy 6, the Lord tells the Israelites, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. The idea is that talking about the Lord is just meant to be part of normal conversation, part of normal life in the family of those who belong to the Lord. Dads, you're your family's pastor. You are the pastor of your home. God chose you to be the pastor in the lives of your children. Mom, God chose you to be a minister to your children. He chose you to be the mom in their lives. Well, but my son, but, but my, my daughter is rebellious. Yet God knew that was coming. And he chose you. He chose you. He chose you to pray for them. He chose you to intercede for them. He chose you to shed tears while you're praying for them. He chose you to never give up on them. He chose you to keep pouring grace and truth into their lives. He chose you. Moses had to learn that if ministry to one's family is neglected, no other ministry really matters. No other ministry really matters. Zipporah, it's interesting. She's performing a priestly duty. And all I'm gonna say about that is that this is another example of something we observe in the scriptures. When a man does not step up and take care of the things that the Lord has called him to do, the Lord has no problem, no problem, working through a woman who is willing to obey. It's not meant to be a model it's meant to shame the man who's not stepping up. This is what we see when Deborah leads the army of the Lord instead of Barak in Judges 4. It's not a model. She even tells Barak straight up, oh, I'll do it, I'll lead the army, but none of the honor is gonna go to you, just so you know. There are also times when there is just way more women responding to the gospel than men. I think of Paul, Silas, and Timothy ministering in Philippi and starting the church with Lydia and her woman's prayer group in Acts 16. I think of Iran today where the underground church is happening primarily through women sharing the gospel and hosting groups. So without getting into an entire separate study, I really believe that the model in scripture has men leading their families and men leading the church, but the Lord is perfectly fine to work through a woman when men won't step up to the plate and be who God has called them to be. So ladies, if, if your husband won't talk to your kids about the Lord, if your husband won't talk to your kids about the word, then you do it. You do it with God's blessing. Don't nag your husband. Don't bug him. Don't be like, you know, we had such a good Bible study time today without you. It was powerful, the Lord was there. Don't do that, just do it, just take care of it and trust that in time, the Lord will convict him. The Lord will convict him. Don't get bitter, don't get resentful like Zipporah did. And if your husband's working 12 hours a day, please don't accuse him of being neglectful. 
Don't be like, you're such a bad husband. You've worked 12 hours and then you come home and sleep when you should be doing a Bible study with our children. Don't do that. Just let the man sleep. He's doing the best he can. And, and dad, if that's you, the best advice I can give is, is do everything you can to make a career move so that you can have the time to actually spend some time in the word with your kids and to disciple them. It's the most important thing in your life after your relationship with the Lord and your relationship with your wife. And here's an encouragement. God doesn't give up on Moses. He's not like Moses, here's the thing. You're reluctant, you're faithless, you're defiant, and you're a terrible dad, so I'm done. He doesn't do that. He teaches Moses a valuable lesson and he keeps moving forward. I just love that about the Lord because that's how the Lord is with you and I. He's like, let's deal with this. Okay, it's dealt with, now let's move forward. Let's keep going. He's all about that. He's all about that. He never brings up the past to shame us or remind us about the failures that we were. He's always about, let's move you forward. Let's make you more like Jesus. Let's get you closer to who I made you to be. Verse 27, and the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So apparently Moses was heading to Egypt sort of via Mount Sinai, perhaps because the Lord told him to. However it happened, God told Aaron where to go and he told Aaron when to go. And Aaron and Moses now meet up for the first time in, in who knows how long at Mount Sinai as Moses is on his way to Egypt. Again, it's really weird that Moses doesn't wait for Aaron anywhere in the story. He just travels as he desires with no apparent concern for meeting up with Aaron. Verse 28, so Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. So they traveled together to Egypt and they meet with the elders of Israel in Egypt. There are some chronological issues with chapter 4. There's going to be some places in Exodus that we're going to get to where it's going to be really obvious that things are not strictly in chronological order. Like someone's going to interact with the Ark of the Covenant a chapter before the Ark of the Covenant is built. And so there's not issues with facts, it's just that editorially some things might be slightly out of order. It doesn't mess with the integrity of the story, it doesn't mess with theology or anything like that. So chapter four, there's strong evidence that all these things are not listed in chronological order. And so you can sort of move the order of events around a little bit to make sense of it and understand that you're not messing with the word of God by doing that. So just to give you an idea, it's a very real possibility that, that it could have happened something like this. So Moses, after the burning bush, he doesn't wait at Mount Sinai for Aaron. He heads back to Midian. When he gets back to Midian, Moses starts having second thoughts because he's thinking if I go to Egypt they're going to kill me for the murder I committed 40 years ago. That's why the Lord speaks to Moses again in Midian and specifically assures him that there's nobody alive in Egypt who wants to kill him. Moses tells Jethro that he has to go to Egypt, asks for Jethro's blessing. Moses then heads off for Egypt with Zipporah and their two sons. He plans on swinging by Mount Sinai on the way because that's where the Lord has told him to go and meet Aaron. But before they reach Sinai, the whole bridegroom of blood incident happens. I think that happens before he meets up with Aaron because Aaron was a priest. And if Aaron had been around and someone needed to be circumcised, Aaron would have done it. They continue on to Sinai where Moses and Aaron meet up. And then before Moses and Aaron continue on to Egypt, Moses sends Zipporah and their sons back to Midian and Jethro. So again, something like that is possible, so don't get too hung up on the events. You can actually 
move them around a little bit to have them make sense without messing with the word of God in any way. It's all speculatory, and maybe you'll think, you know what, Jeff, Uh, that doesn't really make a difference to anything, and you'd be right. That's why we're not spending too much time on it. Verse 30, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he, that's Moses, did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. So the children of Israel who were in Egypt, they received Moses and Aaron, they believe that they really do represent God, they believe the signs, and that's where we're gonna stop our story for today, and we'll pick up chapter five next week. For every Christian, the order of priority when it comes to ministry, let me be clear, ministry, is we minister to God first, then we minister to our spouse, then we minister to our family, then we minister to the church, then we minister to anywhere else that we're called to. Those are the priorities of ministries. Because I said children before church, that doesn't mean that you put your kid's sports game ahead of church. That's not ministry, we're talking about ministry. That's to be how we prioritize our lives. If you're ever someone who desires a greater ministry, don't ever forget that the Lord has put family in your life. If you have kids, then God's given you a small congregation to minister to. And what God is interested in is, is what are you going to do with the church that I've given you? How are you going to minister to them? And if we're neglecting that but desiring to be used by God in a greater way somewhere else, God is saying, no. Minister here first. Be faithful here. Prove to be faithful here, and then I can entrust you with more. And as we said, it's never too late to do the right thing. God chose you to be their dad. He chose you to be their mom. That's not an accident. He didn't spin a wheel and just say, well, let's see what random personalities you're going to get in your kids. Have fun with that. I can't wait to see how this plays out. He didn't do that. He knit them together. He created them from nothing. He knew everything about them inside and out, and he said, no, no, they're for you. They are yours specifically. I'm giving them to you. And we know that God has given us everything we need, even though we often feel like he hasn't as parents. He has. And you have him. You have the Lord, so you have everything that you need. So apply the word of God to your children. If they'll hear it from you, that's wonderful. If they won't, pray it, stand on it, apply the word of God and do not stop. Don't give up, don't give up. The Bible says for in due time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So don't give up. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much as always just for the promises of your word. Thank you that there's a reason for hope, Lord. Whatever is going on in the lives of our children right now, in our families, there's a reason for hope because you love families and you love our children even more than we do, an infinite amount more than we do, Lord. And so we just thank you first of all in faith that because we have you, we have everything we need for every challenge that comes our way in our marriages, in our families. And Father, we pray that you would help us to rely on your strength, to rely on your spirit, 
to stand in faith and believe that you chose us for this task. Specifically, you called us to it. So Father, we pray for your blessing and your power and your presence to be on the church that is every family unit represented in our gathering today. Lord, we ask for your spirit to be working on and in and through our children. And Lord, that we would deal with ourselves before we seek to deal with them. That Lord, if there's anything you want to do in us, we would welcome your work in us so that we can minister effectively to them. So Lord, I pray if there's anything in us right now that is stopping us from effectively ministering in our marriages and families, would you reveal it to us, Lord, so that we can deal with it and move forward. And Lord, if we feel lost knowing what to do with our kids, would you just speak by your spirit what you would have us do right now? Lord, we know that your word divides even between soul and spirit. It discerns thoughts. It discerns what's going on in the heart. It has insight that we don't have. And so Lord, we ask that the mind of Christ would guide us and lead us, that we wouldn't have our own impulsive reactions and thoughts and judgments, but that, Lord, we would pray and we would minister with the insight of your spirit, Lord God. And so in the name of Jesus, we just loose your blessing on every family. And in the name of Jesus, we bind up anything and everything that stands against the good work you want to do in every life, in every child, in every husband, and in every wife. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you are for us, God. And thank you that you've given us everything we need. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.